Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. In April 2021, the world of football, or soccer as it's known in some parts of the world, nearly changed forever. Twelve of Europe's biggest football clubs intend to break away to form a Super League all of their own. The founder members of the proposed European Super League included the biggest names from the English, Spanish and Italian leagues, Manchester United, Chelsea, Real Madrid and Inter Milan, among others. Their plan was to break away from European soccer's governing body, UEFA, to create their own competition containing 20 teams. The founding clubs and three others would be the permanent members, facing no threat of relegation. They claimed it would be good for football, giving fans the chance to see Europe's sporting titans locked in a battle for supremacy. The fans, pundits, ex-players and pretty much everyone else disagreed. There's a sort of dismay and anger amongst all of us, isn't there? Yeah, frustrated, angry. It's a nonsensical idea. It just shows that the owners of the clubs do not care about the supporters. The league would break the sport's long-standing ecosystem while promising eye-popping paydays from media rights and merchandising. Revenues would be funneled to the club's billionaire owners. Former Manchester United player Rio Ferdinand summed up the public perception. It's a close shot for these big wigs, and it's completely and utterly only about one thing, and that's money. The rich getting richer, and the others not even being considered. It became a PR fiasco and was furiously denounced by soccer fans around the world. Caving into public and political pressure, the English teams pulled out. Two days after the proposal was first made public, the idea of the European Super League was all but dead. Football is already big business, and the European Super League was a case of some of the sport's biggest names trying to take greater commercial control of the game. It failed because it turns out that upsetting the fans isn't good for business. So where does the balance lie between commercial imperatives and fan support? Which way of running a sport is best for business? You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. In London, I'm Mike Bird. In Washington, D.C., I'm Alice Fulwood. And in today's show, what makes a good sports business? First, we'll hear from the Deputy Commissioner of the NBA on building a successful league. Going into every season, you want the fans in every single market believing that their team has an opportunity to win the championship that year, regardless of market size. 
Then we speak to the boss of Combat Sports League One Championship on how to make money from those fans. There are many ways to monetize. Of course, you can monetize from media rights, which is the biggest. Advertising and sponsors, which is also a very big chunk. Ticket sales are actually the smallest revenue line item for all the major sports properties. Finally, we'll explore how all that is changing. There's an existential question that's been posed to even the most successful of properties as to what happens in a world where the fundamental broadcast economics change. Alice, hello. Hi, Mike. You were in Leeds last week, now London. What's going on? Yes, I am just back at the mothership for a couple of weeks, making sure everything's still in place. Someone had to keep Tom's seat warm in the studio while he's off in Tanzania on his honeymoon, popping his anti-malarial. No, I'll be back to Singapore in a couple of weeks. Yeah, it's always important to do the annual pilgrimage back to London. Usually I try to time mine to coincide with Wimbledon, which would have meant we overlapped, but I didn't manage to do that this year. Are you a big tennis fan? I am a huge tennis fan. I was thrilled this weekend to watch the Wimbledon final between Novak Djokovic, the sort of 36-year-old greatest ever 23 title holding tennis player, and Carlos Alcaraz, who is just 20 years old. And Carlos Alcaraz did win uh, his first ever Wimbledon. It was his first ever final, his only only the second event he'd ever played on grass. He's a sort of real prodigy, and uh, it was great to watch that match. I'm not a huge tennis fan. My formative memories of Wimbledon growing up were mostly that it delayed The Simpsons on on BBC Two. (laughs) I am a sort of fair-weather football fan. I'm a Sheffield United fan through my dad, but nobody could accuse me of being a glory supporter. But because we're a little bit light on American sporting knowledge on the Money Talks team, I've asked our colleague Arjun Romani to join us for this week's episode. He's the Economist's global business and economics correspondent. But much more importantly, he's, for our purposes, the resident sports geek at The Economist. Hey, guys. Excited to be on. So I actually was at Wimbledon last week. In fact, I got there at 3 p.m. on a Saturday but I didn't start watching matches until the next day because I queued, which is a uh, amazing British tradition where you can wait in line and get row 12 seats on center court in the round of 16, which was fantastic. And is one of my favorite things I've done since I've come to London. I did have a inside knowledge that Arjun was also a tennis fan because we have played tennis. And in that match, I was the old, decrepit, falling apart player and Arjun was the young whippersnapper who absolutely blew me off the court. But uh, I'm glad you got to queue. It's a really good experience. I recall the match being quite close, but uh, that's nice of you to say. But anyway, I'm a big basketball fan personally, as well as tennis. But my professional interest is more about the business of sport than the sport itself. Yes, I think it's fair to say you're in good company with me and Mike there as well. But the sports pages were reading an awful lot like the business pages of late anyway. Yeah, so there's lots going on in the sporting world lately. So the normally sedate world of golf has been consumed by drama after Saudi Arabia's Sovereign Wealth Fund launched what was called a breakaway league. It's called Live Golf, offering some of the game's biggest names, you know, nine-figure sums of money to leave the PGA, which is, you know, the most popular league that's been around for a while. So the PGA and this new Saudi breakaway league, they've actually sued each other, but most recently they've actually dropped their suits and are now merging. Meanwhile, uh, there's more going on. The Glazer family, which owns Manchester United, one of the most successful English Premier League football teams of all time, they're constantly making headlines because they're trying to sell the club. 
I think all of this is really interesting precisely because it highlights that tension that exists between sport as a purely commercial enterprise and success there and, and entertainment, which is what pro sports is all about, right? Exactly. So whether you're talking about what Europeans call football, what we call soccer in the States, I had to train myself, not slip up for this, or whether you're talking proper football, so that's American football, you know, where you tackle each other, baseball or hockey, all these sports face the same challenges, but they approach it in quite different ways. So obviously you have the teams and like Manchester United, they can be privately owned by wealthy individuals, or they can even be listed entities in some cases. And they play within leagues. And the job of those leagues is to make the sport entertaining for fans, but also profitable for the owners. So there's like a variety of structures to how you can run a league. And they make a huge difference to both the commercial and entertainment sides of the sport, right? It's like a sort of perfect natural economic experiment. Exactly. So there are a few different structures that the leagues use that make them competitive in different ways. So just to give a few examples, if you look at European soccer, you have what's called a system of promotion and relegation. So there are different tiers of leagues. So, you know, you have the English Premier League, which is the most elite league in England. But if you do poorly, you can get kicked out. You can be moved down to a lower league. So, you know, that's kind of a competitive mechanism there. But then if you go across the pond to the States and take a look at the NFL, we have what's called a hard salary cap which basically means that teams cannot spend above a certain threshold on player salaries. And that's not something that exists in the English Premier League, where they can spend you know, unlimited amounts, basically, on players. Okay, so that works to make a sport entertaining. But what does it mean for the sort of business side of things, which is what we're most interested in? Yes, I think it has implications for how valuable these teams are and how competitive the leagues are. And I think there's also a connection between the two that we'll draw out in a bit. Um, But take the NBA, so the National Basketball Association, that's my personal favorite league. So the league's been around for about 75 years and really two teams have dominated, the Los Angeles Lakers and the Boston Celtics. Between them, they've won nearly half of the championships over those 75 years. So then if you look more recently, despite there being 30 teams in the league, the Golden State Warriors, a team based in San Francisco, and three other teams, all of which at different times featured one player, you know, LeBron James, they've basically been at the top. So there's a case that the NBA is not all that competitive. So I'm not the biggest basketball fan. What was happening that made the league seemingly so uncompetitive? Yeah, so one of the reasons is structural, just what's going on in the sport itself. If you've ever watched basketball, you'll know that compared to most other team sports like football, basketball has relatively few players and play at any given time, just five people. So that allows superstars like LeBron to wield a lot more influence. They can kind of dominate the games in a way that maybe it's harder to in other sports. And then as a result, the teams they play for can dominate. And another aspect here is how the playoffs, you know, the end of season tournament where you compete for the championship, how that is structured. So unlike in American football, where there's a single game you play against another team, and then whoever wins advances to the next round of the tournament, the NBA playoffs are a best of seven series, which means that there are more chances for the better team to come back. So basically reduces the likelihood of an upset, and it works in favor of the best teams. And then the final thing, which links back to the business, is you know money. So historically, the penalty for breaking the NBA salary cap which is now around $124 million per year per team, has been quite light. So that's allowed these big teams like the Los Angeles Lakers and Boston Celtics that have you know very lucrative local markets 
they've basically been able to pay quite a bit for the best players. There is a small penalty, but it's not been prohibitive. So that's left the other teams with less of a chance of competing with them. But have they managed to address some of those structural issues to make basketball more competitive? Yeah, so the NBA is very, very focused on trying to make their league more competitive. In some ways, they're trying to make it more like the NFL. So, you know, they've, in 2011, the NBA strengthened the penalties for overspending teams that it had introduced a decade earlier. The latest deal between team owners and the players union, which was signed this April, and it's called the collective bargaining agreement, which is a very interesting process in itself, you know, where the owners and the players, they'll negotiate how to divide the pie that the league earns. That also made it even harder for the rich teams to break the salary cap which brings the NBA closer to the NFL. And I actually just came across a very fun fact here, which is, you know, all these practices that we talked about that make the NBA more valuable. There are now more NBA players with $30 million annual salaries than CEOs in the S&P 500. It's quite a lucrative business. Thanks, Arjun. That's fascinating. Well, to understand how all of that has affected the business of the game, who better to speak to than the deputy commissioner of the NBA himself, Mark Tatum? Mark, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Mike. So in sort of very broad terms, how do you think about balancing the needs of a sport like basketball, the teams, the fans, with the running of the NBA as a commercial business? What sort of trade-offs do you have to make? How do you have to think about it? I would say that ensuring that the NBA season remains the most compelling on-court product for our fans and at the same time, delivering on business priorities are not mutually exclusive. If we are delivering a great product for our fans on the court, it will translate into more interest, more viewership, more people want to see the games, and that will further our commercial interest. We just announced that we're going to play an in-season tournament for the very first time this upcoming season. And that's a new opportunity to create this new championship tradition uh, very familiar in the international sporting world, but relatively new here in the United States. And what we want to do is create something in the middle of the season to create another additional competition where the teams and the fans could get excited about, at the same time, meeting the needs of our fans and our business partners as well. Let's talk a little bit about competition and the ideas around super teams. There's been some success in keeping things competitive, but aside from what the fans are looking for in that, is that a commercial imperative on the part of the NBA, preventing the development of very dominant teams? Well, I will tell you, our focus has always been on creating a system that promotes parity of opportunity, right? Going into every season, you want the fans in every single market believing that their team has an opportunity to win the championship that year, regardless of market size, whether you're in a small market or a big market. And so I would say that this year was a great example where we demonstrated this is one of our most competitive seasons in NBA history. With 10 days left in the regular season, 26 of our 30 teams still had an opportunity to make our playoffs and the postseason. The Denver Nuggets, who won the championship this year, they became the fifth different franchise to win the NBA championship over the past five years. So we've really seeing this level of competition increase, this level of parity increasing. And it's clear that that has driven fan interest. This playoffs this year were the most viewed playoffs in 11 years. We actually set a record for attendance this year and the capacity in our buildings. So 
for us, when you create more competition amongst all your teams, where every fan in every market believes that their team has a chance to win, we think that that makes for a, a better league. Could you tell us a little bit about the sort of major growth areas for the NBA as a business specifically? You know, how are the ways that people want to follow the sport changing, follow the athletes, how people want to spend their money? What are the most interesting developments there? I would point to two different areas. As you mentioned, there is a shifting in the landscape of how people are consuming our content. And so we've invested a ton of resources into creating a true direct-to-consumer business in our next, what we're calling our next-gen initiative, we believe that that's the future of our business and one of the major priorities for our organization. And so media and content, that will continue to drive everything that we do, particularly in how we engage our fans outside of the United States, who, quite frankly, experience the NBA virtually exclusively through some form of media. That was part of the thinking as we launched our new NBA app at the start of the season. And we've been able to create these personalized experience with wall-to-wall content from every NBA game, social style vertical video, behind the scenes access. And that's really helped drive and fuel the growth. Um, The other area I would point to, Mike, is just the international opportunity and growth of our league. And so, you know, our games are distributed now in more than 200 countries and territories around the world. More than a quarter of our players were born outside the United States. We've got a social media following and reach of more than 2 billion people. So as you think about the world and the opportunity that we have to continue to grow the sport, those are, I would say, the two major growth opportunities that we see going forward. Have you ever had periods of sort of worrying about the prospect of serious competition developing? You know, in many other sports, there's been an injection of money from the Gulf or anywhere else. I wonder whether there could ever be a sort of basketball league overseas that, for example, didn't have things like salary caps, whether you'd ever see a sort of advantage in developing that. But it sounds like you think the NBA is relatively resistant to that sort of trend. Well, remember, there are leagues all over the world today and I think play a very important role in developing fans' interest. I will say one of the unique things about the NBA is that the best basketball players in the world truly do play in one league, and that's the NBA. And I think if you're the best French player, if you're the best Australian player, the best Canadian player in the world, you want to play in the NBA. We're focused on creating the best product that we can. So we are not afraid to try new things, to innovate, to stay ahead We export our game through different forms of media and content and technology. And I think if we continue to do that, then we don't have to worry too much about what other people are doing. Mark, that's really interesting. And thank you very much for making the time to speak to us. Thank you so much, Mike. I appreciate the opportunity. So, Arjun, what did you make of what Mark had to say? Yeah, I thought it was interesting that he mentioned the in-season tournament. So this is an effort to increase interest in the NBA's regular season. So they have an 82-game regular season that determines who qualifies for the end-of-season tournament. And the league has had this problem for a while now where superstars like LeBron James, they won't play all the games in the regular season. They'll maybe play 60-some, 70 games. And that's pretty controversial because, you know, it reduces fan interest. Sometimes you buy your tickets before you find out if LeBron is playing or not. 
So it's not all that great and reduces the interest in the regular season. And a lot of people think that the NBA's regular season is not really all that competitive. So they're basically trying to revive the game's vitality during the cold months of the winter. We'll see if that works. You know, some players are not too happy about it. Others are optimistic. Second thing to note on what he said is it's true that the NBA actually has had a historically competitive season this year. And I actually agree that the efforts around, you know, salary capping and so forth do make the league more competitive. But it is worth remembering that the NBA, while it's competitive in some ways, in other ways it's not. So remember that the teams in the NBA are always protected. There's no threat of being relegated to a lower league like European soccer. So that's something the, the NBA probably won't talk about very much. And both these rules, they make the NBA extremely owner-friendly. So, you know, this, the teams are very, very valuable. So over the past decade, the value of the average NBA team has actually grown by more than 600%, which is, you know, more than three times the stock market. So that is how one of the world's most established leagues thinks about its business. But to understand the lessons a relatively newly commercialized sport has learned from the NBA, I spoke to Chatri Sitchatong, who runs One Championship, a Singapore-based martial arts promoter that was founded 12 years ago. Chatri, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. So give us a little bit of information to start with. How did you get into this business? What made you think of starting the championship? How did you get going? And when I was in the U.S., I saw how big sporting culture was, but sports properties. I mean, you know, the NFL is worth $120 billion. Then I looked across Europe and F1, Champions League, EPL, these are all worth tens of billions of dollars. And at the time, around 12 years ago, when I started one, there's literally nothing coming out of Asia on a global basis. And yet, if you think about Asia's history, 5,000-year history as the birthplace of martial arts, it just made a lot of sense that the 4 billion people here would rally behind something that's already part of the culture and history and daily life of the continent. When it comes to attracting and retaining talent, in some leagues, in some sports, I'm thinking the NBA here, for example, you don't really have to worry about teams or players leaving the league, the outfit in general, completely because it's so dominant. In combat sports, you guys do have competition. How do you attract people, the talent you want to keep appearing with one, and how do you keep them there? Well, the world of combat sports has become a global duopoly. The two giants are UFC out of the West and one out of the East. One championship ranked number fourth in the world across all sports properties. The UFC was ranked number nine. So, you know, if you are a fighter, really, there's only two places that you really dream of going to. And the pay is pretty comparable, right? We both pay the highest in the world. And so I think what happens is people gravitate to what they are naturally inclined to. So our mission since day one has been always to unleash real life superheroes who ignite the world with hope, strength, dreams, inspiration. And that's a very different ethos than, let's say, our Western counterpart in the UFC, where blood sport and anger and controversy and hatred and all these other things are encouraged on their platform. In many ways, one and UFC are 180 degrees opposite from each other in its DNA and ethos. In terms of the business model of the company, how important is the sort of mechanism of actually broadcasting the fights? We're talking about, obviously, streaming here, all the other mechanisms. How important is that side of things commercially? It's, it's vital. It's absolutely important. I mean, that's why we're broadcasting 170 countries every Friday. You know, live sports is the king of content. 
But the other aspect of live sports is making sure that we have the widest reach and ease of access. And so in most countries, we are with the number one or number two largest free-to-air broadcaster or largest digital streamer. And that is by strategy, right? We're not just going to partner with anybody. We truly believe that you have to be wide and deep in, in a given country in order to have the population excited. And we were a lucky beneficiary because of the digital economy. You know, we were born right in the middle of the skyrocketing growth of the digital economy, whether it's social media, whether it's digital media. Uh, we got very, very lucky, right? I mean, old school linear TV, you could only put out content for a given country. Now, when we put out a live stream, it goes around the world. So the company, like a lot of rapidly growing ones the last decade or so, it's not reliably profitable. And that's certainly not unique to combat sports or unique to one championship. But how does the sort of era of higher interest rates and the change in the economic environment we've seen over the past years affect you guys? You know, one has been an investment phase for 10 years. And now to build our platform, to have TV and digital streaming deals in 179 countries takes time. You don't just walk up to Amazon and say, hey, please take my content. It took a year and a half for that deal alone to do, right? In the last two years, we've really begun to see the fruits of our labor where the monetization has taken off. We anticipate profitability in the next one to two years. We see a very clear path because our revenues are growing quickly while our costs are flattish. This business model is a very high incremental margin business in that every new media rights deal you do, every new advertisement deal you do, a vast majority of that ends up being dropping to the bottom line because there aren't costs associated with that, right? You're throwing the same number of events, but you're just getting paid higher and higher dollars by advertiser or by broadcasters because our ratings are resonating. We've talked a bit about broadcasting. What are the other revenue streams for the company? What are the other ways of making money? There are many ways to monetize. Of course, you can monetize from media rights, which is the biggest advertising and sponsors, which is also a very big chunk. But you can monetize from merchandise, selling t-shirts and caps, and you can also monetize through video games, digital products, NFTs. And once you become popular, there's a million ways to Sunday to monetize. For those who don't know much about sports, ticket sales are actually the smallest revenue line item for all the major sports properties. Chatri, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate your time, Mike. So, Arjun, Alice, one of the things that struck me there, which I think both Mark and Chatri touched on, is the idea of doing things directly with the consumer, making things customizable, more personal. That's obviously good for viewers who, you know, might want their own bespoke experience that they pay a little bit more for. But crucially, it also means that the companies involved uh, like disintermediating the middleman that was there before. I guess in the very traditional model of sports media, you film the games, stick them on TV, and unless your sports company owns a TV station, then you've got somebody in the middle there taking some form of cut, putting a sort of barrier between you and the actual fans. With apps and direct streaming and all sorts of things like that, these companies can go straight to the fans. And it's nice to have that personalization, but it's also pretty astute from a business perspective if it means you're removing those sort of intermediaries. Yeah, I find the market structure on TV deals to be really interesting because, you know, historically cable TV, you know, it's been 
quite a lucrative business. Some would accuse it of being quite rent-seeking because the product doesn't change all that much year to year, but they still have been historically quite profitable. But now all these TV firms are really being crushed because, you know, people are shifting towards streaming. But sports remains like this last bastion that's holding up cable TV. And I, I think there's like two things that make that happen. And one is you want to watch the same thing that everyone else is watching. And you also want to watch it live. So that kind of gives cable TV kind of a, a continual hold. But then now if these new sports leagues, like what Chachi was talking about, are able to go direct to consumer, then maybe that gets disintermediated as well. So the profits shifting around quite a bit, that could continue. Yeah, I think it's interesting how all of these streaming rights and television rights arguments play out for the sport that I spend most time watching, which, as we've established, is tennis. Because it's interesting, you know, all the arguments we've made about, you know, how you structure leagues and how you make it such that teams are competitive with each other. That's not really something that you can have that much influence over in tennis. You know, obviously, it's an individual sport and... There are ways you can play around with who plays who by sort of varying the amount of ranking points that players get for certain tournaments or matches and things. But in general, you can't make Novak Djokovic any better or worse than he is. Uh, If he's going to win everything, he's going to win everything. And that's just the way that it's going to be. And when it comes to the sort of how you watch that sport, it's interesting because... I think tennis fans are getting both some of the benefits of the shift to streaming and some of the costs in that there are these baby streaming channels that you can sign up for, things like the Tennis Channel or Tennis TV, which allow you to watch basically every tournament you could ever want to watch, even the tiny ones. So if you're a real sort of nutter about this stuff, you can spend your entire life watching it now, which was much harder before. But at the same time, if you're sort of a fairer weather fan who just wants to watch big grand slams, actually a lot of the coverage of those has splintered into various different networks. So if you want to watch the French Open from America, for instance, you need to sign up for about three different streaming services that have different matches at different times throughout the day. And it was sort of a nightmare, to be honest. I mostly gave up. So I do think it's a sort of very interesting time for sports and how they're broadcast. Because like Arjun says, I want to be watching all the matches that other tennis fans are watching as well. Uh, But it's pretty tricky if they're on sort of eight different services. Now, on the subject of France and openness, one of the things I'm excited to read this week is our coverage of Fiona Scott Morton, former Obama administration official who has withdrawn from a position she was going to take in the European Commission's competition division as its chief economist. This is all a bit dramatic and recent, but um, basically she's an American and some Europeans wanted a European to get this position. Very ironic, I think, for the competition division, but you even had French President Emmanuel Macron complaining and hoping that they find a European for the job. Looking forward to reading our coverage of that. I think I can guess what sort of line we might take on that issue. You can read that piece and more for absolutely nothing by going to economist.com forward slash podcast offer for a free 30-day digital subscription. That is, if you're not a subscriber already. After the break, we'll speak to one of the people responsible for building the NBA into the commercial behemoth that it has become. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, 
live and move to the UK. Before the break, we heard from the MBA on how to structure a league to make it engaging and then from a relatively young commercial sport about how to cash in on that engagement. But to understand more about monetizing sport, I wanted to get some input from Bobby Sharma. He's the founder of Bluestone Equity Partners, a private equity firm, and formerly vice president and general counsel of the NBA Development League. He's worked across basketball, soccer, and cricket, helping to build sports properties from grassroots programs to professional leagues across emerging markets, including India, Brazil, and China. Bobby, it's great to have you with us. Thanks so much. Pleasure to be here. From a commercial perspective, are there broad lessons from the span of your career about how the sort of business of sports has changed, about running a league or establishing new sports as a commercial venture? What are the sort of broad lessons there? Sports has become big business on the back of it being entertainment. And media is the backbone of any successful sports enterprise. And it's no coincidence that those that are the most valuable and those that are the most successful are those that penetrate the widest markets, by which I mean their product, which is a media product, is consumed by you know, people measured in the millions or hundreds of millions. And that's something that really hasn't changed. It's, it's how you go about getting that audience that's changed because the ground has shifted underneath the entire entertainment economy, not just the sports economy. The means of of distribution and consumption are obviously constantly evolving and shifting even as, as we speak. And uh, that sort of uh, distribution and consumption is is really the driver of, of all the economics of major sport, whether it's Olympic sport, whether it's basketball or European football or baseball or American football or Australian football the end of the day, what determines the value and thereby success of the people running these properties is how many people watch. So uh, I think when people who might not know as much about the business of sports think about these things, the one that they'll hear about a lot is broadcasting agreements. So if there's a change in the broadcasting setup for a given league, that might make big news. These are huge deals. Is that as important as it's ever been in terms of actual revenue raising for a league, for a sports business? How is it changing with digital technology? What's going on in that area? 200%. I'd say that's more true than ever. Even at the highest levels of sport, given the disruption in media, there's an existential question that's been posed to even the most successful of properties as to what happens in a world where the fundamental broadcast economics change. Those that will continue to be the most successful are those that are trying to get ahead of the problem rather than react to it. The problem being Gen Z, Gen Z plus, it's a fundamentally different culture than was the one that I grew up in. I'm Gen X. We very much were plugged into broadcast television and cable television. And that's different now. That's, that's part of the reason that I got so deep into esports and that it fascinates me that Gen Z and Gen Z plus generations are not a majority interested in the culture of sport as much as they are the culture of celebrity and streaming and entertainment. YouTube, again, is a place where I don't go to watch television. 
I don't go to consume sports or Instagram, frankly, but there are very large percentages of Gen Z and Gen Z plus. That's the only way that they consume sports. So absolutely broadcast agreements are critical, but we're entering a phase, I think, of the sports economy where the traditional cable bundled model in the US satellite distributed internationally model and those guarantees that come along with the competitive bidding process for the major properties are at risk. In this sort of business, it's pretty unique that you're having to balance the interests of teams, the fans, some of the older fans versus younger fans. How do you start to even think about that sort of thing when you're trying to run a commercial enterprise? Obviously, for some people, this is like the most important thing in their lives. The business of sport is very different than most other businesses because of the point that you mentioned. There is a cultural component to it that at minimum gives rise to a sense of community. And I think at its extremes gives rise to almost religion. And I think European football is especially indexing towards that religious side, more as a part of not even the community, but a part of the culture. And there is value to enhancing the commercial aspects. It reaches the consumer better. It gives them a better product to consume, which they love and is so important to them. And it drives revenue into the enterprise, which, you know, in some cases is really important, right, to, to win. <laughs> so, uh, which uh, I think every supporter, especially the religiously fervent ones, want. We heard a little bit earlier about the European Super League attempts, which were clearly an issue where essentially the commercial instinct stepped slightly onto the wrong side of where the culture was. People objected to that sort of thing. Can you think of examples of where it's been done really well, aligning the cultural and commercial side? In the United States, we don't do or haven't done historically sponsorship on the uniforms. The uniforms were sacred. That is an example of cultural over commercial that we have held on to a long time in this country. And the way that I would offer that it all sort of came about in terms of becoming culturally accepted here was through my league. The NBA understood that that's not something you could just come out and do. And the way they went about it was actually first doing it on a test case basis in the minor league, in the G League and putting ads softly, sometimes socialized, often socialized with the fans as to where the location would be agreeable and what size. And that got done, happened for a matter of years. And then it eventually slowly got rolled out onto warm-up jerseys and then eventually onto the uniforms, which have become a very important, in some cases, tens of millions of dollars in annual recurring revenue driver for those teams. And You've seen it happen in other professionals, North American sports, including very recently in Major League Baseball. Probably the most sacred uniform in all of U.S. sports is the New York Yankees uniform. And they've recently come out with their first sponsorship patch. And it hasn't been met with, to my understanding, much backlash. So there's ways to go about doing these things successfully if you go about them with understanding and respect. Bobby, it's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So Arjun, Alice, what do you make of what you've heard? Yeah, I find this really interesting because, you know, all these leagues, they're facing a number of trade-offs and 
one of the things we've talked about is the relationship between how competitive the league is and, you know, whether it's making money, drawing in fan interest and so forth. But there also have been these efforts to create super leagues and put the best teams head to head against each other. And you'll actually notice that it turns out that the seasons in which the best most well-known teams in the NBA, like the Los Angeles Lakers and the Boston Celtics, the seasons in which they make it to the finals also happen to be some of the most lucrative seasons for the NBA. So the top heaviness isn't always a bad thing, actually. It can actually be a good thing because that's what the fans want to see. And we talked about tennis, right? We love it when uh, Djokovic and Alcaraz make the final. I, for one, was very pleased that happened, right? So I think there's this tension where you want to be kind of competitive, but you also do want the best players that have narratives and storylines around them to make the final matches. And so there's kind of this inverted view, I think, you get between competition and how successful a sports league is. And you want to be pretty competitive, but not too competitive. And I think that's maybe a little bit different than some of the markets we talk about in the real world because of the fans being involved. Yeah, I completely agree. In particular, if you think about women's tennis versus men's tennis over the past 15 years or so, the criticism of women's tennis was that it was quite random. New people would win the titles all the time, with the exception of Serena Williams. And so people couldn't get behind those players or had never heard of them when they reached the finals. And it wasn't as fun as seeing the sort of major giants of the sport like Nadal and Federer and Djokovic sort of playing off against each other. But you also can have sort of too much dominance. If there's only sort of one person at the top, it can get a little boring. I find this whole episode fascinating because there is a sort of weird amount of hand-holding that these companies have to do to try and make all sports, you know, competitive enough, interesting enough that the sort of fans can get behind it without squeezing them for too much or changing the sport in such a way that you make it less interesting to watch. There is something common across all the sports we've talked about with respect to that. And I do understand, you know, there are so many ways to monetize sports that we've talked about. So the sponsorship, streaming rights, the merchandise that you can sell to fan, obviously the sort of ticket sales. It's easy to see why if you you are a supporter of any of these sports, you might feel like sort of anything that gets in the way of your enjoyment or any change in the structure that you might think would make it sort of less fun, that has that commercial interest behind it, would just make you feel like you were being kind of built or sort of nickel and dimed. So I do understand why people sort of take this and get so obsessed about it. But at the same time, it's such a weird industry that there's so much of this going on. It seems like there's an awful lot of bureaucracy, things like salary caps. It's sort of mad. Yeah, I think that point on there being a desirable level of competition that isn't completely competitive is really true. And I think being in Singapore, you see that a lot, probably being in Asia in general, with fans of the Premier League, which is, you know, almost always Liverpool or Man United, right? It's like the teams that were were absolutely massive at the time the sport was becoming very, very popular in Asia. And I don't think that the sort of median fan coming to the game in the world outside of Europe in particular cares that much about how good Fulham's chances are of winning the Premier League, right? It's just not a concern in the way that it might be with multi-generational football fan families in the UK. So yeah, different priorities, I guess. The other thing that really comes across listening to this is just how lucky some American sports are not to be popular overseas because you can do things like salary caps if someone isn't going to come along and disrupt you and set up a league somewhere else. It's really hard to see how a lot of that would work if American football, for example, is really popular around the world. The league exercises so much more influence precisely because they don't have that international competition. And given basketball's increasing popularity globally, maybe one day we'll see some equivalent of the Saudi professional leagues sort of massive financial influence. 
and have LeBron James on billboards in Riyadh and Jeddah. It would be a really interesting sort of case study for business, whether that extremely high level of dominance and those network effects can be disrupted by pure just cash flooding into the sport. American football, the NFL, it did rake in nearly $20 billion in revenues last year, which was, you know, twice the next best league, which is the NBA or Major League Baseball in the U.S., so clearly, the very thick competition it has has been raking in lots of money. So it's, it's a strange relationship between all these different things that we're talking about that's going on. Yeah, don't feel too bad for America, Mike. They make plenty of money from what they're doing. <laughs> okay, I think with that, shall we turn to our stats of the week? Uh, yes, let's do it. I've decided to sound like a completely broken record this week because my stat of the week is also about tennis. It is 50 years because this year is the 50th anniversary of equal pay for men and women in tennis. The US Open paid men and women the same prize money for the first time in 1973 after Billie Jean King went to sort of rabble-rousing activist campaign about it. So they are celebrating that anniversary this year. I brought a stat along as well, and it's about the tractor. So people dispute when the tractor was invented. Some say it was, you know, a British engineer in the early 19th century. Others put it, date it closer to the, the end of that century. But either way, by 1920, just 4% of American farms had a tractor. And even when you go to the 1950s, uh, which is, you know, maybe seven or eight decades after it was invented, less than half of American farms had a tractor. So technology spreads quite slowly sometimes. This sounds like an episode we're going to have to do. I want to do the history of the tractor. Maybe a two-hour special, something like that, a Christmas episode. I would be very, very keen to do that. What I immediately thought when Arjun said that was, uh, are there any tractor-related sports? You know, do people fight with combine harvesters that we can talk about? There's got to be something. There's one of everything, right? My stat this week is going to be the miserable one. This statistic comes from my colleague Oliver Morton. It is on average sea surface temperatures, which have just in the past few days passed 21 degrees Celsius, which was until recently a record set in 2016. It was also set in 2016 in late March, early April, which is when the ocean surface temperature is usually a lot hotter. This one is something you're going to want to visualize. You maybe want to go to Oliver Morton's Twitter because it's pretty harrowing just looking at how much higher this is than every other year. It's really not a gentle climb. It's an absolutely enormous break from even the highest surface sea temperatures ever recorded at this time of year. So yeah, nice harrowing one to end on. That both sounds very scary and uh, marks something of a trend. I think we've had sort of several terrifying heat-related statistics of the week of late. It really does seem to be a sort of remarkable time for the warming of the planet, which is not ideal. Bad for the planet, good for the supply of stats of the week. Uh, so, <laughs> Arjun, thank you so much for joining us this week. It's been fun. You'll have to add me as a replacement co-host from now on. Yeah, we'll bring you back on for the Tractor three-hour episode. Um, I also want to thank Mark Tatum, Chatri Sijitong, and Bobby Sharma. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can always write to us at podcasteconomist.com. Today's show was produced by Dan Asher and Marie Keyworth. Our sound engineer is Wei Dong Lin. And the executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Alice Fullwood. And this is The Economist. 
Data is the lifeblood of business and society. Want to get better with it? Register now for Economist Education's new two-week course, Data Storytelling and Visualisation, starting on July 31st. Designed by The Economist journalists, you'll learn how to create compelling infographics, reveal hidden insights, and to persuade others. And as an Economist podcast listener, enjoy 15% off with the code DATA. So sign up now at economist.com slash datacourse. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.